I'm Chaplain Jacob Scott of the Oregon National Guard. This is the Hope in the Trenches podcast. We're going forward. I'll sit down for conversations with people who offer interesting and informative perspectives on finding strength for life and work in the trenches and even improving our spiritual posture. Whether you feel like you're under heavy bombardment or ready to go over the top toward a new objective, it's good to be with you. So our guest today is Lieutenant Colonel Tennis Middlebach. She's originally from Boring, Oregon. And if you're not from Oregon, yes, that is a real town, Boring. She joined the Army, enlisting in the Colorado Army National Guard in 1997, then went to Officer Candidate School and commissioned in 1999. She served as the commander at multiple echelons. She was deployed to support the relief efforts for Hurricane Katrina back in 2005, and then to Afghanistan in 2006. In 2017, she was part of the National Guard Bureau's joint expeditionary team to the U.S. Virgin Islands after Hurricanes Irma and Maria. Colonel Mitt, as she's known uh, in uh, around our circles, she wears multiple hats for the Oregon Army National Guard. She's the Assistant Deputy Chief of Staff for Logistics, also known in the Army as the Deputy G4, right? Correct. And she's the outgoing commander for the 821st Troop Command Battalion. In 2020, as a commander, she had troops dispatched multiple times on short notice for civil disturbance response and firefighting security checkpoint missions. And she recently wrapped up a mission as the deputy commander for Task Force Guardian, the Oregon National Guard's COVID response team. And our service member and family support recently named Colonel Mitt Commander of the Year. Now, in addition to her wealth of experience with the National Guard, she spent 17 years in corporate America with General Mills, Kraft, Nabisco Foods, and Oscar Mayer. She's a graduate of Mount Hood Community College and Portland State University. She and her wife, Nadine, live next to the Columbia River in beautiful Camas, Washington. I I love downtown Camas. It's great. They have two highly successful daughters and sons-in-law and a son and daughter-in-law at Fort Knox, Kentucky. He's a sergeant first class in the Army. They're blessed with six grandchildren. I also have with us in studio today, Master Sergeant Stacy Lyman. She is the Senior Religious Affairs NCO for the Oregon Army National Guard. And, of course, our great public affairs officer and producer, Major Chris Klein. Tennis, thanks so much for joining the Hope in the Trenches podcast. Now, you've got a lot of great experience with deployments and domestic operations, or DOMOPS in our lingo, right? as well as your experience on the fiscal side with the National Guard. And I'm sure we'll probably dive into some of that in our conversation today. But first, tell us a little bit more about your origin story and what what led to your career in the Oregon National Guard. Like, how did you end up in Colorado? And, okay. Yeah. Hey, good question. Well, thank you, Chaplain, and thank you, Messer and Lyman, for inviting me. It's an awesome opportunity to get to talk about what it's like sometimes in the trenches, especially from uh, the perspective of Joint Force Headquarters and TDA units and what it's like to have also MTO units under it. So, uh, But my story really started with... As a child, my dad was in the Coast Guard in the 50s, and his first duty station was Hawaii. And it oh, wasn't, nice. yeah, he should have paid the Coast Guard, is how <laughs> I always say it, but uh, it wasn't even a state. And he was uh, put on a boat to go and look at things that were left over from World War II. Uh, and so, anyway, he had a great experience. And I used to dress up in his Coast Guard outfit during Halloween, and I just thought, oh, someday I'm going to be in the Coast Guard. And uh, so during college, um, I had a basketball scholarship to Mount Hood, and uh, I just thought, that's it. There's no other way. Portland State didn't have a women's team at the time. And so I went down to the MEPS and talked to the Coast Guard about joining, and I was like, well, I really want to be an officer because I'm going to be college educated. So there were restrictions on age, um, but there was also... um, I really wanted to go to the Coast Guard Academy. I didn't mm-hmm. want to just be a, a regular officer. I wanted, through an OCS program, I wanted to go to the Academy. So I applied, not once, but twice, and denied uh, to go. I didn't probably ask for enough help and assistance in putting that packet together. So for 10 years, I just decided that wasn't for me. I wasn't going to go and serve my country in uniform. Uh, but for literally 10 years, I watched Discovery Channel or whatever it was back then that showed Coast Guard on the weekends. You'd watch the rescues and they'd tell about the stories and all the things they did with their, you know, pair jumper swimmers that would go and rescue folks. And I mean, literally. And finally, after about 
two years of consecutive watching, Nadine just said, get off the couch and go talk to somebody. <laughs> but you have got to join the military. Like, you cannot put me through this anymore. We will not allow the TV to even turn to that station. So um, I was living in Grand Junction, Colorado, went down and talked to the Coast Guard. And it got me over to MEPS in Colorado, went through the whole thing. And literally, my recruiter was like, you cannot do this. You are 27 years old. You're too old to be an officer now in the Coast Guard. There was no waivers back then. So I would have to be enlisted. And this recruiter was like, no, I am not going to let you enlist in the Coast Guard. You have too much to offer. Please go next door and talk to the National Guard. And he literally walked me out of his office and took me to the National Guard office next door and just said, you can keep your career in corporate America. You can become an officer. You you need to do that kind of thing. I mean, he was really a great recruiter because he would listen to why I wanted to serve and what I wanted to do and have an impact. Um, but that was just not the right fit. And I thought that was really good advice. And I've used that down the road of looking at people and trying to find what fits for them. And the National Guard was like a fit. It was a glove, like a golf glove, brand new. And it just felt so good when I um, started talking to them and what they could offer. And I could still pursue my professional career and have this second career and bring something back to my employer. Because at the time, they were downsizing a lot in corporate America. Their training departments, their leadership training departments, their coaching uh, was going to the wayside. And so the National Guard offered me an opportunity to get all that learning and training as an officer and a leader to bring back to corporate America. And that's really what I use as my launching pad. Oh, fantastic. Well, and what a what a great story. You're absolutely right, too, that the recruiter took time to to kind of hear your story and where you were coming from mm-hmm. and, and made sure that 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 was that it was going to be a good fit for you. Yeah. And it was. It really was. Like the funny story is when by the time I got through all the paperwork and got up went in with the National Guard, I turned 29 at boot camp in the gas chamber. <laughs> and they let me go first. I didn't realize what a gift that was, as scary as it was. Uh, but to go through the gas chamber and celebrate your 29th birthday, I'll never forget that. But the entire time I was at boot camp, they thought I was CID. And I had no oh, idea the, what that's CID... That's the Criminal Investigation Division, right? Or in, Investigative exactly. Divi- Division? Exactly. And at the time, they were having some issues at boot camps and recruiters um, you know, in the 90s. So they had started placing basically plants um, to get intel and bring it back. Like, are there problems in the ranks you know, with recruits mm. and, and drill sergeants? But I had no idea. See, I what? You know, I was like, drill sergeant, this, you know, E4 does not understand. You know, oh, you're the best one we've seen. And they open up my file and it says, oh, here you want to serve your country. Like, you know, they're looking at my reasons. And then you work for Oscar Mayer. They thought it was a cover story. And so they're like, well, if you work for Oscar Mayer, you probably know the Oscar Mayer song. So I had to sing the Oscar <laughs> Mayer song. And then they'd make me do push-ups and sing my baloney song and um, so for nine weeks at boot camp, I was put in charge and I never was ever let out of charge. I was the platoon sergeant or platoon leader or, you know, bay leader. And they just ran me hard because the entire time. So when I graduated, uh, they I was boarded. At, and I didn't know what a board was. I mean, I really had no military experience or friends. And so they boarded me. And out of the 5,000 people that were going through boot camp, um, they voted me as leader uh of the cycle. And so I received my first RCOM. And had I been in E3, they would have promoted me to E4, but I was already in E4 because I had a college education. Um, and with that, my dad, I told my dad what was going to happen. You know, you got to go meet the post commander and go over to this dinner. My dad drove straight from Portland, Oregon to Columbia, South Carolina, and it took him 27 hours in a brand new Jeep Wrangler that I drive today with 300,000 oh, okay. miles on it. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I've seen your Jeep. Yeah. So did you know right away that the Army was, that you felt at home? Absolutely. Even though I've everything I love is boating and being on the water and doing all that, it was really being a leader and being able to make a difference. Um, I wasn't an E4 for very long, um, but I just thought when I did do AT and went with my unit, um, a wired uh, company, and I just thought, why are we sleeping over here in this hole when we could be sleeping over there? <laughs> Like, who are making these decisions? You know, and I used to say, someday when I'm in charge, you know, I'm going to make things different. Oh, absolutely. So my soldiers have probably had to sleep in holes, but there were no other choices. <laughs> sure, sure. So then how much later then, when did you go to officer candidate school? Um, pretty much right away. After I went to boot camp, I came back and was uh, what they considered a 91 Sierra. I was a direct enlistment to go straight from boot camp into OCS. Okay. Okay. So I started in Colorado, and then I took a promotion with my company to move to Utah. So I moved from Colorado to the Utah Guard, and that's where I graduated in class of 43 to victory. Oh, very good. 
Very good. Well, then, then what brought you back to Oregon? Um, I was working corporate America, and then there was a, a big merger and buyout of the customer I was supporting called American Stores. And so at the time, they pretty much had to put people in other places. And I took a, they wanted me to move to corporate headquarters, um, which was, uh, for me, they wanted me to move to Duluth, Minnesota. And I told them, don't know. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's pretty oh, cold that there. Hurts. That hurts. I'm originally from Minnesota. <laughs> we, we went to Duluth on my honeymoon. Oh, yeah. I hear it's a nice place. I, But my brother was having kids at the time. So I took a chance, uh, an opportunity. They moved me back home. And so yeah. I stayed here for a few years and worked. And then after my deployment, um, again, they wanted to relocate me, but I was home. And so um, craft was wonderful and gave me a beautiful severance package and a pension to this day. And so very grateful for that experience. But it was really staying home and being closer to my family and being an aunt for the first time. And um, so I was excited about that. So, so you got to Oregon in time for Hurricane Katrina. So yes. t- tell us about that deployment. Matter of fact, I was living in Idaho uh, at a Marriott Residence Inn for three years because my company wanted me to commute. They didn't want to me to buy a home there. So I did that for about three years, and I had to call somebody because all my stuff was in this Marriott, um, one of my friends, and they had to go over and pack everything up. And I had just gone on vacation after AT, showed up in Colorado for our, our daughter's birthday, and they called a raging bull. And I thought, oh, my gosh, you got to be kidding. I had just driven two days to get to Colorado after AT. So tell our listeners what a raging bull is. Uh, that's a call-up of – we use raging bull and grazing herd. Grazing herd is just maybe we'll get activated. We just need to make lead- leaders aware. It's kind of a warning notice. A raging bull is a full call-up where you are to report to your army within 24 hours. So when you hear raging bull, you know, this is the real thing. It's the, definitely – and. But we were already in Iraq and Afghanistan at that time. Mm-hmm. Did you? Did they tell you what you were getting prepared to do, or had you been watching the news? We had been watching the news because Hurricane Katrina had just happened about five days before, like we were, while we were on AT, and we came off AT, and I started my vacation. So I had seen what was going on, but I had never deployed to a hurricane zone. We live in Oregon, and we're pretty lucky that yeah. we have pretty mild weather here. So... Um, off I got, uh, off my vacation. I literally drove into a Marriott, uh, from one Marriott to the next, and driven up to the Colorado Springs Airport, got on a plane where my other neighbors at home in Camas had packed all my stuff that was still in the dryer from AT, threw it in a bag, and met me at Pang. And uh, my two sergeants had cleared out all the ammo, the ASP at Clackamas, so the ammo uh, supply point, put all of our ammo on a C5 with our truck and a forklift, and the three of us flew, and I was literally, that was in less than 18 hours for me being called up. Wow. Yeah, it was quite an experience. And then we also spent 33 days there after all of Oregon left. They kept me behind because we had all that ammo and we couldn't get it home. Oh, okay. So it took uh, another t- seven or 10 days to for us to get home with all of our ammunition. So how much time did you spend in 33 days oh, excuse me. living yeah, you did say that so, yeah, yeah living outside in a lovely louisiana that's great well now that maybe segues well into one of the main reasons i brought you on today is because over the the past 18 months or so it's it's been interesting for everyone around the world but with with your role as a commander and uh, and as a as a staff officer in the Oregon National Guard, you've really been at the epicenter for a lot of the domestic support operations that we've done in the Oregon Guard. So, tell tell us what the last year and a half or so have been like f- for you. Well, what's interesting is all the years I've spent in the Joint Operations Center, the Emergency Operations Center, about a decade there. It was unusual to call a unit more than once. I mean, it, it just never happened. You mm-hmm. would call a unit and say, we need you to go do two weeks on fire duty. We need you to do snow removal. There's an ice storm, whatever the situation was, but you never tapped a unit over and over. You moved on to another unit. So in this last 18 months with a global pandemic, with rioting, with uh, an inaugur- a presidential inauguration, a lot of events were happening. Um, I have a military police company uh, that gets activated a lot. We're also the National Guard uh, Reaction Force for the governor. 
so she can deploy us um, when she needs us to, uh, when her Oregon State Police or other law enforcement is overwhelmed, then they reach out to the National Guard for us to do some of the security missions uh, for them. And so these aren't ones where we were armed in any way. We were literally just backup um, to do traffic control points um, to basically cordon off areas um, and keep the citizens of Oregon safe. Mm -hmm. um, our mission also was very similar when we went back to uh, the presidential inauguration uh, to do support traffic control points. Most people saw it on the news where there were a lot of fencing and a lot of security points. Those just need to be manned and they have to be manned 24 hours a day. So we were part of that rotation uh, with soldiers back there. But what was unusual with our unit this year is that we were activated eight times in a literally 13 month window. And 30% of my force is asked to muster within 24 hours but they live in Eastern Oregon and Washington, 30% mm -hmm. do, or some in Southern Oregon. So for me to muster, it almost takes 24 hours for people to get the call, talk to their families, their employers, get them into the unit, get them to go collect their riot gear, issue them, you know, whatever kind of equipment, special equipment that is being requested, um, and then stand by. And mm -hmm. so for soldiers, you're ready to go do action. You're ready to do something. And for all of these call-ups that we kept getting for social, uh, you know, social events happening in Portland, we were really the tier two. There's a tier one level that was called and we were two, two. So we stood by and stood by and stood by. And this is where first line leaders have to be so creative because when there's soldiers sitting around, that's either it leads to boredom. It leads to a horrible guard experience. You don't feel like you have sense of purpose. Um, and you can start having really negative thoughts like, oh, we mm -hmm. just do this over and over. We keep practicing being mustered, but we never actually use us. We want to put on our MP gear. We want to go make, feel like we made a difference. And so first line leaders offered training, more training, training, driver's training. They did everything to keep Joe busy um, so that they felt like even though we were on standby, many people got driver's packets done. They were never drivers, never learned how to drive an up armored Humvee. Um, folks did MVD training, really using their MVDs. 40% of the MP unit last year when we took them to annual training, it was their first summer of annual training. That's oh, how wow. new the soldiers are in 1186 MP company. And so they don't have a lot of experience. And so that's what was really important for these first line leaders to keep working with them. Um, we also made accommodations. And this is where your sergeant major is so helpful in the unit. Our command sergeant major came up, saw their living conditions. And we found out our folks were having to sleep during the day and go work at night. But you're living in a, in a building, the Armed Forces Reserve Center here at Camp Withycombe which doesn't have really drapes or curtains. And so you're asking people to switch their, their sleep cycle. Um, and you also have lights that come on the minute somebody moves in a room. So we had to learn how to disable those. So Sergeant Major figured out that. Then she made sure that the auditorium was good um, so that they could watch movies after hours and, you know, just have some downtime and decompression. Um, we had guest speakers come in and talk to them. Um, we had the check chaplain made a rotation through really talking to people make sure that their families were okay and um, we used our service member family support uh, team to make phone calls to families to, so they would understand what was going on um, we can't give operational data but we can say they're still doing training they have not been activated you know and we just kind of help do that fear at the same time we could find out if there were problems at home um, where we could help provide those resources and so that's what we did, but we got really good at it. You know, after about the eighth call-up, um, we had our system down pretty pat. Well, that's pretty exciting times. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's when soldiers enlist in the National Guard, they, they probably assume that I could get called up at some point to, to serve my community. And when I was a, a young uh, officer on active duty. Uh, I was in the 82nd Airborne Division, and we would regularly be on short recalls. Mm -hmm. So we expected that. But you don't really expect to hear that uh, in the National Guard, you could get called up on such short notice. And it highlights, too, the, the fact that so your unit, the headquarters, is in Salem, Oregon, and you have soldiers that live sometimes six hours or more from mm -hmm. from where they drill. In a normal National Guard soldier, the, statu the statutory requirement is 39 training days a year, right? So you're, mm -hmm. you're, you're 12 
monthly weekend drills and then 15 days of annual training AT every summer. So you got a lot more practice than that or a lot more training time. Well, we did in one respect, um, and we had to use outside sources. So we used local police and law enforcement to give my folks that training because, like I said, they don't really get that kind of muscle memory uh, from military police on how to do riot response. And it takes iteration after iteration after iteration because my wartime mission for the MPs is very different than riot response. And riot Mm -hmm. response um, falls under different local authorities with different statutes. And so we need to be trained by those partners. And so we developed some really great relationships. Um, I was very lucky uh, to have a commander of the unit that is very well connected and resourced uh, through the law enforcement community and could provide those uh, services. And our adjutant general even came over to partake and and watch the training that was going on. And pretty cool to see your MPs on the outside of a vehicle, like a SWAT vehicle, showing up to a situation and and standing online and protecting whatever that was. Um, We were asked to also protect the Capitol. So not just in Portland, we were also asked to protect the Capitol here in Oregon at Salem. And so the soldiers could quickly look at that and say, I made a difference. I was trained. I was ready to go. And that's what was so great about the leaders is practicing it over and over and giving them something. Most of them had never seen riot gear before because, again, that's not something they really get a lot of hands-on training experience with before they come. Not every MP unit is utilized as a riot response. Right, right. Now, I I got to travel around the state over the last six months or so to visit our airmen and soldiers who were working at the COVID vaccination sites and at the 211 call center. Almost to a person, they were excited to see their, or to serve their communities and neighbors. One of our soldiers even told me that he bumped into his junior high science teacher who was in line to get a shot. uh, shot. So that makes it a little bit easier to see the purpose and meaning of what they do. And, And like you said, you're your soldiers, the MPs who were protecting their communities in that way, could, could probably very easily find meaning in, in what they were doing. How do you try to engage service members when maybe it's not so apparent that what they're doing is important? Oh, that's a really great question. Um, one of the things that we've prepared, so I have a TDA unit, a Table of Distribution Allowances. This is a unit that does not get deployed. They are a resource that's used uh, to basically be a support or higher headquarters. One of the things that my experience brought me in the last decade is when we have emergencies in, in, in this last year, they were getting larger and larger because of the global pandemic. Um, so we were actually creating joint task force. And that was something I was assigned to when I went to the Virgin Islands is we call around and we try to find a personnel officer and we try to find a logistician, but we ad hoc these teams. And so uh, one of the things I, when I first joined uh, my unit and came on as their commander, I'd go down the hall and see a specialist or a sergeant and I'd be like, oh, you're in the headquarters company. What's your mission? Some of them said, we don't know. And what, you know, what's your purpose here? Well, I'm, I'm doing this, but they never let me do my MOS. But Mm -hmm. most of them said, well, we're, we're just here to support the MPs. Well, really, the headquarters company is to support all the units I have in my battalion. So I quickly identified that as I have two issues here. We should have a joint task force, a headquarters that could be activated, and Mm -hmm. everybody has the permissions. Everybody can do their job, and you wouldn't need to put an ad hoc together. Um, So quickly, that's what we decided to do as a staff is to create a joint task force and to create a medal for a TDA unit. The medal, the mission essential task list, right? Correct. So the mission I wanted for 821 is if a DOM ops emergency happened in Oregon and the governor calls TAG, TAG calls down the Joint Operations Center, says, I need X amount of people to take over this mission, they could activate the 821 headquarters company and we could be set up. We'd have to be obviously augmented with cooks to cook for us or satellite professionals and, you know, some of these other things, but you would not have to set up an entire staff. I have a staff that's tried and true. And so to practice that last year, challenged my staff that has always stayed in barracks, gone to Camp Rylea, had, you know, very just go down and shoot. We do our PT test, then we come back to the armory. They've had very uh, garrison lifestyle and a garrison kind of 
attitude. Last year, we took him out to the field and we slept seven days. We created a tactical operations center to include satellites and had constant communication and brought the brigade commander out and the now uh, state sergeant major and showed him what a TDA unit could do in the most austere environment, which is a hurricane response or somewhere like that where there is no power. We used our own generators. We you know, resourced everything, all the life support completely done for a TDA unit to show my staff and it built such confidence. And now they felt like I have a mission. I literally had E5 saying, I got your satellite working, babe. I got your satellite. And they could hit another satellite and actually transmit to other units on the other side of Camp Umatilla where we were training. And they were so proud of what they'd done. They happened to be the only unit that set up that tactical terminal in all the units in Oregon. And so to give that back to them, they just walk around. They're just gloating. I mean, they're so excited. And one of my soldiers told me this year he was getting ETS and he got to set it up again. We went to the field again. This time we went 10 days and did the same thing. And that soldier said to me, I was going to get out. But he says, I just decided now, even if I have my E4 for the rest of my life, I love what I do here for you. And I thought, wow, that's somebody that really understands what his mission is now. He's like, I'm ready to go. So we could deploy this unit absolutely anywhere in an austere environment, and they could be a headquarters company. That's the sense of purpose for a TDA unit. Well, that's the, that's the power of mission accomplishment or, mm-hmm. or, or feeling that you are empowered to do something that has relevance and, and purpose and serves others. Right. And and so you challenge even, you know, your there's smaller sections within a headquarters company, but you also have to challenge your staff. And so what we rehearsed this year were battle drills, battle drills. And we asked the National Guard Bureau team to come out with some trainers to really train the staff on those functions. They practiced battle drills that were so realistic that they thought we had never tried them. Hmm. But their battle drills were, we need an MP company to go secure something in downtown Portland because of a riot. Well, we had already done it. Then they brought up COVID battle drills. We had COVID positive cases this year. We had to exercise our actual battle drills. You know, we had um, other battle drills that they put us through of just how do we handle a Red Cross message? How do we evacuate somebody? And it was outstanding training. And every one of my staff officers feels completely like competent. And I could literally go now to the brigade commander or the J3 or, or the land component commander and say, sir, you have a staff tried, true to practice. Now, no one's come and evaluate us because that's not something that mm-hmm. we would do. But if we were to have an evaluation, I kind of feel like this National Guard Bureau team that came to assist and train. But if you had some outside entity, look, can they perform these functions in every one of the staff sections? We could. And your, your soldiers and, and subordinate or junior leaders have the, the confidence that comes from performing. And it really was great because now with this trained staff, the five unique companies that I have on, inside this um, 821 Troop Command, I have a band. So they have totally a different mission than our military affairs unit, totally different mission. I have a little maintenance company that belongs to a different state. Their parent unit is in Nevada. Um and then I have the, the military police company and a headquarters. So we don't act as a normal battalion that has, here's our battalion, this is what we're doing, all the companies follow suit. Really, the only things that we do that are collective tasks are we tend to go fire our weapons, you know, individual weapons qualification, and our PT test. I mean, those are really some of the only events that we all have in common because we have such a unique mission for each of those. Um, and so my staff bringing everybody together this year, two years in a row at AT, really developed a cohesiveness within the battalion of very unique companies. And I think we saw partnerships, but we saw friendships developing, you know, folks that would never normally see the good example. I had folks that were COVID positive that we had to quarantine this year in our battle drill, which was real world. Um, The band saw them sitting outside and waiting for the transportation plan and how we were going to evacuate these folks and waiting for their tests. And the band gets out there and does an impromptu concert <laughs> for them just to bring up their morale. Then the band the next night says, oh, okay, they're outside and it's nighttime. Why don't we set up our screen and our sound system and played movies? And so just for the band to just step up and do that, that's where I think um, it was a very unique situation that we got to take these unique kind of companies, but still acted as a battalion. But that's part of the the Why? For the for an army band to begin with, isn't it? The, yeah. To to provide 
morale and to boost morale and, and encourage uh, our, our soldiers. Now, one of my favorite books is Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Have mm-hmm. you ever read that? I have. Matter of fact, uh, my German teacher at my Catholic school uh, was in Auschwitz, and that was mandatory reading in her class. Oh, really? And so when you took uh, high school German, we read that, and uh, I've actually used it later on in life just uh, through meditation and different items that he talked about. And so when you think woe is me, or I feel sorry, or self-pity, I would use things I'd learned in that book to just snap myself out of it. And I've used it along the line in leadership, whether it was corporate America or my soldiers. So I'd first uh, heard of the book probably 25 years ago, but I, well, full disclosure, and I hate to admit this, but I, I actually read it for the first time just like three years ago. But now I've probably given away 50 copies of that book in the last three years. Well, in there, there's a great quote, and and Frankel quotes, uh, he uses this quote from Friedrich Nietzsche several times, that he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. So, so knowing your why can, mm-hmm. can help you uh, live through any, any, well, any conditions, right? Because Frankel wrote that uh, while, or he was reflecting on his experiences in the concentration camps. So how have you, well, you've talked a little bit about how you've tried to keep your soldiers motivated and engaged with their missions to see the purpose and meaning in, in, in what they're doing. Um, that These call-ups and, and the, that high operational tempo can be challenging for families too. How have you tried to, tried to engage families? And do you, like, do you rely on the soldiers to help explain to the families why they're doing this or why they're being called up or why they're being utilized so heavily? In this COVID year, we were unable to have our families come in person uh, to attend anything. that um, They would normally attend an annual uh, presentation by our family support uh, coordinator, and we were unable to have those. So we relied on Zoom. We, during our mandatory briefings, had the families sit with the soldier because we were doing virtual drills as well. Um, we had a few of those, and so that was our opportunity to, to talk to them. Um, but we've also used outreach where our family coordinators have called just to talk to the family, just explaining what they were on, because not a lot of people understand all the different missions. You know, running a, a tactical point uh, for the Oregon Department of Water wildfires is, you know, to protect people from going up into the back roads. So we just wanted to let their families know, no, your your soldiers are fine. They're just down there to make sure people with, you know, off-road vehicles don't, don't go past these checkpoints because the fire could move into that area. And so that makes people feel like, oh, they're doing something great. We also use our newsletters and our newsletters are really important. I've asked each of my commanders to send out a newsletter each month so it can explain what's going on. But on the back, we have resources mm-hmm. um, and we list those, but it has times and it shows all of the training that we have predicted training. Um, but sometimes we can't, we have the unpredicted, which are the call-ups. And really just helping people understand is the governor relies on us that it, for anything, whether it's fire, flood, you know, ice storms, which we have um, this this past year, we experienced all of them. And with the MPs and with the kind of vehicles we have and what their training is, is they can really protect the citizens of Oregon. And so they, they get that. And my headquarters company now understands, well, we haven't been used as a task force in that sense. But when we get the call up, it's all hands on deck to help whatever the unit is that gets called, we can do those functions. And so even for somebody in a headquarters company, they feel like I have a sense of purpose now and I understand what's going on. And and it's really expectation management. And we use that for them and helping people understand, okay, we think the mission's going to be this long. Um, And that was one of our things um, during the joint task force that we had this last year with the pandemic um, was expectation management that we're giving these vaccines out, but how long does that going to last? You know, and we try to give people that it looks like 90 days, you know, so kind of plan on 90 days and we'll go with that as a factor until we hear, well, it ended up being from almost January where I had soldiers giving vaccines until almost uh, May when they came off the end of May. That's six months of somebody's life Mm -hmm. away from most folks were in the local area. So they went home to their families but those employers needed to know. 
So it isn't just families, it's helping employers understand because we want their support as well. And so really, we used our, you know, employee support of the Guard and Reserve, the ESGR volunteers, um, to help soldiers draft letters to their employers, thanking their employers for allowing them to do this. And so again, it's having the the employers buy in as well as the family to understand what does that soldier do? They think we're just going out camping all the time, I think, you know, and we have to undo that and say, boy, we're multi-talented. And we had our, you know, we had people in headquarters companies supporting when they first stood up uh, the hospitals a year ago when we all were running out of ventilators, running out of hospital space. My headquarters company commander and several volunteers from the headquarters company actually set up and established the backup hospital at the Salem Fairgrounds and ran security on it. And so they had a real mission, you know, to go do that. Um, We also had volunteers this year when we had power outages in the Marion County area. We used our soldiers to go knock on doors. After 10 days, that's highly unusual in Oregon for folks not to have power restored or water restored. And a lot of those folks rely on power because they have well water. So we were used to go door knocking um, to find out what people had for services if there were elderly people that could not get out of their homes. Um, And we would send that information back to the local public works authority and they would use that to do outreach. Boy, just sitting and listening to you talk about what the last 18 months have been like for for your National Guard soldiers and, and families just reminds me of how incredibly versatile our people are. But then, too, how important it is to make sure that that everyone understands expectation management, mm-hmm. uh, as, as you said. I like to use the analogy of the, the iron triangle of painful trade-offs, and I think I shared that with you. But... Um, it comes comes from the contracting world where a contractor will tell you you can you have to consider cost, quality, and time, and they'll say pick two because if you want it done well, it might take a little bit longer or and it's going to cost you more. Um, if you want it done fast, well then your the quality is probably not going to be what it what it what you would like it to be. And so for our National Guard soldiers and, and airmen, I think the, the iron triangle of, of trade-offs is uh, the family, your career, and the National Guard. You can't put too much stress on any one of those without having a significant impact on the others. And if an airman or a soldier has to choose between their family, their career, or the National Guard, guess which one's probably going to go, right? Correct. So, Master Lyman, you even thinking about ask. You wanted to ask a question about retention because I think these missions and the things that you've been doing is that has that been been good for for retention or Master Lyman? We were talking about this on the way up here too. Um, why don't you ask 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 your question? Well, retention is a high priority for the guard, and as you know, we've lost a lot of soldiers in the last few years for a variety of reasons. So. Can you talk to us about what you've done to retain soldiers, some of your um, challenges and some of your, you know, win-win stories? That's a great question. And retention is, um, from our land component commander, it's been the number one effort in Oregon is to maintain strength. Um, And so, again, it goes down to culture and climate. Um, and, and I love what you're saying was a sense of purpose, having a mission. Um, in our case, I actually think even though we had a high op tempo, that the missions actually made soldiers feel like their membership in the Guard, they wouldn't have had these opportunities. I have several soldiers that had never been to Washington, D.C., and here they got this opportunity to go travel. Our land component commander gave us a challenge a few years ago, and I came into company command uh, two years ago. And he said, if you maintain your strength at 100%, I'll let you pretty much go anywhere and do anything for a mission. And so at a town hall, we stood up and I said, sir, I'm at 100% and I'd like to see my unit go on an overseas deployment tour. And he said, you're at 100% and I'll use the band, the 234th Army Band. Um, We came and enlisted, um, re-enlisted this year, uh, 14 of their soldiers at the same time in a ceremony. They have been 100% strength. The Army Band has to not only go find soldiers that can come in, they're their actual own recruiters. They have to find people to come into the Guard and actually be able to go to boot camp and pass that, but they have to play a specific instrument. So it'd be like the chaplain having to find somebody of a certain faith to come in and fill a spot where they were looking for that. So they have to find a 17, 18, 19, 20-year-old um, wow. that can fill this 
come into the military and want to serve but and pass all those tests, but also can you play the flute or are you a trombonist or can you bang the gong? Huh. And uh, so I don't think a lot of folks know how talented that is. So I have a command team over at the, the Army Band that's been able to not only 100% retain. So I got an opportunity to ask the land component commander, sir, the Army Band has not deployed in decades. I think the last time they went was when we were in Panama. And so that probably tells you how long it's been since the Army Band has done something overseas. And he says, what would you like? And I said, well, I hear there's a tour in Germany. The band in Germany needs a break. They come back and they do kind of block leave. And if we could be the band that fills in for that time. And it's a done deal and it's on the calendar. So the, the Oregon National Guard Band will be going to Germany to backfill an active duty unit so that they can take their block leave. And that is the retention tool. So now, folks, even in a in a pandemic year where they had a lot of virtual drills where they had to perform their instruments at home or do it through Zoom, they have that carrot to dangle in front of them. Hey, you want to re-up? Think about it. And, you know, this time frame, we'll all be sitting in Germany and enjoying, a, you know, a great opportunity to go to Europe. And really, all-inclusive vacation paid for <laughs> by the United States Army. And it's working. It, they are excited about it. They're talking about it. They're thinking about what they want to play, what the kinds of performances they'll do, the opportunities to see multinational leaders and be playing in those kind of ceremonies. So we've used that. So what I've, what I've been hearing you say is that the soldiers love to do their mission. Yes. They want to work their MOS. I had two cooks that have never cooked in a field environment and um, used their field kitchen this summer. And they fed the entire battalion in a tactical environment for the entire time we were out there, um, which was uh, 10 days. And they were so excited when they came home. They were dog tired. You mm. know, those cooks work hard, um, but they got to do their MOS. They got to cook and, you know, they saw soldiers every night. There was no wasted food. Soldiers got a hot meal. Granted, it's a, you know, cooked in a bag and, you know, kind of field conditions, but it beats an MRE or it beats going without hot meals. But those hot meals provided morale. Um, told you about the satellite terminal guys and my signal people using their MOS. Our chaplain got to do services in the field. And soldiers were like, they didn't even know that's available because we haven't had a chaplain come out to the field with us. And so by having that, we had our PA from the brigade show up and run a little sick call and obviously, we were very grateful that she was there because we did have some folks come up um, with COVID um, during this exercise and getting that kind of good care. Um, so I'm really happy to report that um, our unit has been able to maintain 80% strength. Our goal was 70%. Um, and when I asked soldiers around, is it because of the money? Like, are you enticed by this uh, sign-up bonus? Um, are you enticed by the benefits to go to college? And most of the time, it is not. For, you would think it would be like $20,000 to sign up for six more years or I got free college. In most of the cases, it was for the person on the left and right of them. And they loved what they did. They love a lot of them aren't law enforcement, you know, that are in the MP company. Um, and so they get to do something they do differently than their Monday through Friday job. For most of the band, a lot of them do work in music careers um, as either teachers or educators and musical educators, but they get to go do something in a different perspective, you know, and so they enjoy what they're doing. Um, and, and so, again, it's it's not the easy things that you would think that would entice them. The money's nice, sure, and, and folks get a lot of the benefits. Um, you know, one of the things we've been able to do is um, use our retention NCO to make those conversations with folks. And this is where we find out in these high-op tempo, we look at soldiers, and if we have soldiers we feel are getting maybe fatigue or this isn't what they thought it was going to be, we try to work with our other units across the you know, the brigade and say, maybe this person needs a different assignment. They don't need necessarily a rest, like I'm going to get out, I'm going to ETS and get out of the military. What they need is a change. They don't need a rest. They just need a change. And a lot of folks didn't even know that was available to them. They really thought, well, I've hit my rank. I'm a captain. I'm an MP. I guess that's it for me. There's no other positions. They really had no idea that there is, you know, a career progression of things that they don't need to be MOS qualified, that we have, you know, positions that they don't need to have any particular branch of material um, branch for to be raised to a major lieutenant colonel, colonel, and on their way up to one star if that's what they wanted for my officers. So even some of our junior officers didn't really understand their career progression and what was available to them. And so really sitting down, I, I would say that this age group that we have um, is hungry. 
They want coaching. They want mentoring. Um, we also have a large millennial culture that isn't about security, staying in a job for a long time, knowing what it's like, having, they want different stuff. I mean, these kids are amazing on their phones researching something. So when I find a restaurant, I tend to go to the same restaurant over and over. I tend to order the same thing. These kids get on and they're like, nope, this drill, we're going to go eat here. This drill, we're going to go eat there. They are amazing at doing research and they like that change. And so I think with this millennial culture is letting people know, okay, so you came in the MP company, but what do you want to do? How do you want to make E8 someday? You know, make, make master sergeant. Did you want to go here? Do you want to go try this? And they like that. They want the change. They crave the change where people, I think, in my generation, we don't handle change as well. We we want change to be slower and over time and more predictable. Um, but when I've seen this group is they love the, the change. And so by offering them opportunities where they can do that, it gets them exciting. And that's where we use our retention NCO to, to give them the options. Like, you don't have to stay here. Do you want to go over and try this? Do you want to do that? Do you want a different MOS? Where some folks, I think, come in, they didn't get that kind of mentoring or nurturing when they first came on, that they had opportunities to go do that. And then just walking them through, there's, you know, pros and cons with everything. So if you're looking for a high op tempo unit, these are the units you might want to go to. If you're looking to become infantry, here's the units you should look for. You know, and then where do you live? Where does your employer work? You know, what does that situation look like? And for a lot of folks, we were talking about the guard, their careers, and their family. And for many of my soldiers with this high up tempo, it has been hard. It's been hard on employers and it's been hard on families. Um, so asking people to stay with you is, are they at the fatigue point? Let's get them before they get there and go find them an opportunity where they can bring that down. So anyway, it, uh, that's been very helpful for us to be able to, to be able to keep soldiers in and giving them, like I said, a change versus a break. Well, and the, the, the highlights that you've shared from your time in command really gives, a, it's a great example of the wide range of opportunities that are available in the National Guard to, to serve and to train. Mm-hmm. And, and and really to, to not just be a soldier with a wartime mission, but to give something back to your communities. Oh, it, it was huge um, for a large portion of the soldiers that I worked with on the JTF. It's going around. And they like you said, these vaccine places, we had instant gratification. We knew what we did. Um, but just knocking on doors of elderly people, seeing a National Guard person come up to their door and just ask them, how are they doing? Are your lights on? Is your water working? What can we do for you? That was impact at the at their community level. And that, to me, is just instant feedback to them that I am part of something greater than myself. And that's really what we um, constantly sell is that guard experience. And that's where I challenge my officers and NCOs that are under me in these um, units is what do you do to provide your soldiers an outstanding guard experience every drill. And now knowing we have a lot of stuff that has to get done in a very short amount of window, but how do you make that exciting? And I'll use virtual drills this year, which were a challenge for us. Many of us didn't know what Zoom was 18 months ago. (laughs) So here we are using Zoom and we're using our phones um, to do a lot of our drill. And we had soldiers get into their class A's, send us pictures of their class A's. And it was kind of fun because they included their family or (laughs) their pet and they're sending, yep, okay, you look great in your class A uniform. A virtual uniform inspection. Exactly. Oh, that's great. Um, We had folks, you know, use their um, devices to send us what they had just gone running or they had done so many push-ups. We had sometimes um, soldiers use their children to record them doing push-ups or something like that and send it in during the virtual drill like, go, daddy, go, daddy. You know, (laughs) you could hear it. Or we'd see some that had young enough children sitting on their back doing push-ups. And it was just fun because you really included. And that to me is, again, that buy-in. Like, why are we doing this, daddy? How come you're not at drill? Or mom, what are you doing? They could. They were felt like they were a part of it. Yeah, your soldier still has a sense of belonging. Mm-hmm. So Major Klein was the, he was one of the previous commanders for the one fifteenth MPAD Mobile Public Affairs Detachment, right? So part uh, yep. part of the eight hundred twenty first. So Chris, you you've been listening to Colonel Mid share her time as a as a commander uh, over really an, an interesting period of time. Um, what do you what do you think about what you've heard so far? Uh, to me, it's very interesting because I've been in the A21 as well. And um, but one of the things is your um, just to clarify, you're also a, a technician, correct? And just the the work life balance, just from my own selfish pr- uh, perspective, like 
if you could talk about that, being a Guards member, being a battalion commander and work-life balance with, uh, and especially like in the pandemic, that that piece of it, because it seems like it was very intense. And, that is, it's uh, a really great question. Like. One of the things um, I try to do is make sure we're using our chain of command, um, that people aren't direct coordinating um, with unit commanders. So I'll use my NGRF commander, the MP commander. He should not be hearing from people outside his chain of command. He's a traditional guardsman. So he has a job Monday through Friday. Um, and so we don't want to bug him during his career um, Monday through Friday to answer a phone call. And so just knowing how that looks for him, what his day and that's why I've asked each of my officers, pick a day of the week that that is your day that you're talking to your unit, that you don't wait a whole month before you talk to your unit, that you're getting constant communication. Understanding each of my leaders' work-life balance or do you have somebody in your home? A lot of my guys that do work in law enforcement have alternate work schedules. So it's not calling them and expecting something when they, that's when they're sleeping. Um, but it's about balance. And I think it's really, you know, I always say it's family and fitness, and that can include your spiritual fitness as a big part of that, um, your finances, and, and balancing all that. And so when I ask somebody getting out of the guard is, how do you replace that income? Because that's part of your my Fs, you know, the F words. And fun is one of them. How are you going to replace how much fun we have on the drill weekends, you know? Because <laughs> the only thing better than uh, free beer is free ammo, and we have a lot of that, so... <laughs> Um, but I, I really, when I start seeing, that's where first line leaders come in. If we feel like somebody's coming out of balance, like, whoa, we have really tapped. And I, I'm looking at my unit and these young leaders that we have tapped over and over. And I always say, when you do a good job, you know, they're going to ask you to do it again. So um, it's making sure that we don't, that our leaders above us understand that somebody, again, needs that change, not a break. Hmm. Um, because if we continue to do that, then their life is going to get out of balance because they feel like they're so driven for success that they're going to go 100 miles an hour, try to get us everything we've done to be 100%. But you can't sustain that over, over and over, especially because then what suffers? Either your family suffering or your career suffering. And so for me, this last year, I had really three jobs. I'm a battalion commander. That's my traditional weekend job. But it really... It, it seeps into everything I do because once you're a command position, that's 24-7 um, when you have soldier emergencies. I'm the deputy G4, so I have that. But luckily, I have a great staff that allowed me this opportunity. Then I got picked for the joint task force and to be the deputy commander of the JTF with 400 soldiers running vaccination points. And a year ago, I was tapped for the joint task force EXO position where we did PPE distribution. And I can tell you for my family is very, very accepting. Um, but I do look at those M days or I look at people with young children and at a demanding time during the pandemic, it was even harder because childcare places were closed. Schools were closed. What does that look like for my soldiers? And so I really try to give each of my commanders a lot of leeway to work around people's schedules and understand and show that compassion, demonstrate empathy, work with them, offer, you know, alternate work schedules, offer something that helps us get through this. Because if we weren't and that family suffers, I think that soldier would make an instant decision that when his time was up, that he was, he was gone. And so we do try to um, show where you can find that balance. And again, it's reaching out with all the resources that are available. But I love that, Major Klein, you're asking this because using our military public affairs, I, one of the first things I saw during the early pandemic, remember this is right when the states were shutting down, California shut down, Washington and Oregon was, I believe, second or third, pretty darn close. And it was scary times for people. What does that look like? I mean, it was ghost town apocalyptic to drive through cities that everything was closed. The very first story I saw on CNN was my 821 HHD commander giving an interview that was actually taken off of the cameras that our MPAD was using that day with the um, national correspondence. And those oh, were the nice. first pictures and stories that were coming out or by our own folks that were capturing it. And so for soldiers, they can take a look at it like their parents or somebody saw them on the news. And I'll tell you, even though it's devastating as this pandemic has been, the one thing that really got our message out there is what the Guard is and what the Guard can do. And I think the word's out because I think a lot of governors are going <laughs> to tap us for many, many more missions um, just knowing what the Guard is capable of doing. And they understood it. I mean, right from the get-go, look who they put in charge of Operation Warp Speed. 
was a logistician from the Army to run Operation Warp Speed. We understand logistics. We understand missions. And I think a lot of people now, are. it, it did a lot for us for our PR work um, to understand what the Guard is and get our mission out there and, and our message and what we are and what we can do. And so a lot of people... Even more than it seemed like a decade ago, even after Katrina, which was 15 years ago, people understand the Guard now because they really, they saw us at the inauguration. They saw us in D.C. They see us on our streets. They see us wearing our uniforms, giving shots. And I have to tell, share this story. In the biggest vaccination point run in Portland, Oregon, we had the largest amount of National Guard soldiers there. These were Air Guard and Army Guard medics that were giving these vaccinations. The number one and two in the Portland were both Army and Air medics that were given the most vaccinations per day because they had these metrics that the Oregon Health Authority was running every day. And the people with the most accurate at our Salem site, which is the second largest in the state, most accurate and a number of people that could get the most shots out of a vial were Army and Air Guardsmen. And that is huge. And the director of that Portland vaccination site, the largest one in the state, in his civilian capacity is a major in the Oregon Army National Guard who was deployed to Kosovo with Chris and I in, oh, in 2020. Yeah. He, he used all that great experience directing the Camp Bonsteel response to the pandemic, and he brought that home and mm -hmm. used that running the vaccination site at the Portland Convention Center. And I think that's what, you know, I tell soldiers all the time, we're soldier citizens. And I think that's what makes us even more valuable to the Army is that we come with a civilian skill set. And it augments our soldier skill set. And that just makes us that much more valuable. But you have to learn how to balance those. And, and that's where really leaders and resources and, um, and just finding that place that you have that quiet time to get yourself centered again. And so, you know, for us recently, just having a chaplain amongst our mints in our battalion has been extremely helpful um, because we see soldiers get to that stressful point or something happened or we had, you know, even people, a lot of young people. You don't expect to have deaths and people get killed in accidents. And we had some of those. We had a soldier lose a child this, you know, this past year. That is a devastating and you don't expect it from a young crowd. The first person I call as a commander is my chaplain. And then after and talking with the soldier after we hear about the event, calling the soldier back saying, would you like to talk to a chaplain? Would you like to talk to somebody? And almost every single time they say mm -hmm. yes. They, mm -hmm. they just want somebody to hear their story and, and talk to them about it and listen. And then that gives me such good information, um, you know, of how did the soldier seem? Should we deploy any other resources? What does the family need? And so they come back with a lot of that, you know, and now they just wanted to be heard, you know, or or. And so for me, when those devastating events have happened this past year, we have a lot of exciting ones. When you have young soldiers, you get a lot of bursts. So we wrote out a lot of baby cards and we made <laughs> a lot of baby blankets. Um, but when these tragic events happen is getting a personal letter from your battalion commander, from your commander. And so that's one of the things I've tried to do with each of my commanders is where does that personal touch come from? And sometimes it's just a letter and I put my business card in and say 24-7 and I put my personal number on the back because they're a soldier for life. Whether they stay in... Um, their whole 20 or they get out somewhere in between, you have a friend always in the guard. You know, once you've been in my unit, it's just like family <laughs> for life. Well, so, so as we wrap it up, Tannis, boy, thanks so much for sharing all those stories. But the big idea for this podcast is hope. And so before I let you go, we, we want our people and our leaders to live and serve confidently, knowing and believing that we always have hope. What, what gives you hope? I think it's seeing young leaders inspired to stay in and young leaders doing the right thing, even when they're not asked, you know, or I, I see it. I get constant, you know, feedback from folks that somebody did something and nobody was there to see it, you know, but somebody witnessed it and they brought it to my attention. Um, and just watching this next generation coming up with their skill sets and what they're able to teach me. Um, but that gives me hope. But one of the things I always look at it and I go back to um, is a book that I find very inspirational um, for me. And that's looking at Sir Ernest Shackleton, who went to Antarctica and left his, you know, half of his uh, ship um, on an island in the winter in Antarctica at the time of World War I um, and had to come back for them in the spring. And he brought every one of his soldiers home. 
And so for me, this summer, um, with our battle drill with COVID, with some of the tragic things that happened um, to my unit, was that I did get to bring home every soldier to their family and to their employer safely. And every time I do that, that gives me hope. And teaching these young leaders to do the exact same thing and to follow up on that and make sure that we are also making sure that the soldiers understand that message. Giving giving our people back to their families and their communities a, a healthy and confident person. Absolutely. That that was away from them for two weeks, but brought something back. You know, they learned a new skill. They did something different. They got to see a different site. Um but that really, it's the people coming behind me, knowing that I'm, that us as leaders, senior leaders in this room, have built a bench. That I know when I retire, that if a snowstorm comes, the guard's probably going to be there. I live on the river. I'm pretty sure that somebody's going to fill sandbags at some point in my life, and it's huh. going to be a guardsman. And I'm going to walk out there and you know give them something out of my refrigerator, say thank you for filling those sandbags, you know, and keeping my family safe. It is the people, isn't it? Yeah. Well, Tennis, thanks so much for, for being with us. God bless you and your family and your soldiers. I really appreciate that, Chaplain Master. This podcast is produced by the Oregon National Guard Public Affairs Office. My prayer for you is that wherever you find yourself, that you might find hope for today and strength for the ambiguity and chaos of life. Blessings on the rest of your day.